Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Supreme Court rules that the Trans Mountain Pipeline case brought to court by British Columbia will move ahead. What does that mean for the pipeline itself? Can we start? And some are saying we should just give back the Huawei CFO and get the two Michaels back on Canadian soil. Is that the answer? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring up pipelines. It's been a while since we've talked about that. The Supreme Court yesterday rejected uh, the appeal of the Trans Mountain Pipeline case. This was in regard to uh, the British Columbia government. To talk more about all of this, Chris Sims is with us, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and is on the line now. Chris, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, too. Boy, what a week. Finally got here. Uh, Your thoughts on all of this. Uh, What does it mean? Does this mean things are finally moving forward for the pipeline? Yes and no. Uh, The no part will eventually happen when, of course, the uh, pipeline twinning starts happening in the actual lower mainland, uh, in Metro Vancouver, as it's now called. So a bit of background uh, for your listeners there. The pipeline already exists. It runs between Edmonton, Alberta, and out to Burnaby, which is part of Metro Vancouver and the Lower Mainland here in British Columbia. What's happening is they're twinning it, and that means that the existing pipeline will mostly be used for things like gas products, whereas the new pipeline that runs alongside of it will be primarily used for hauling uh, bitumen, which is, of course, the substance that comes out of the oil sands. Now, where the Taxpayers Federation comes in is the fact that we get a ton of tax money coming out of natural resources, including uh, Canada's energy sector. We used parliamentary budget officer data a little while ago and crunched the numbers, and it was staggering. Uh, Because we do not have our full and proper pipeline capacity here in Canada, we're losing out on almost $13 billion Mm. between 2013 and 2023. That's just over 10 years, $13 billion, and that's just at the federal tax level. That's not even touching provincial taxes, uh, local property taxes uh, for energy, all that stuff. To put it into perspective, that would pay for almost 25,000 new teachers in Ontario. It would pay their salaries for a decade. So it's a huge amount of taxation, uh, tax dollars we're losing out on because we're not getting our oil to market. So it's one of the main reasons why we're applauding this move uh, by the Supreme Court very swiftly, same day, rejecting the appeal of the B.C. government. Usually they'll retire for a couple of days to consider it, but they rejected it immediately. Uh, And what does it say, the fact that they did do that so quickly? Is that the urgency of the issue or it's just that much of a slam dunk case? Putting my journalist hat back on, I covered Supreme Court for a lot of years when I was in Ottawa. It's the slam dunk of the case. It is federal jurisdiction, period. Uh, These are interprovincial pipelines. It has always been federal jurisdiction. What happened with the provincial government of British Columbia is they tried saying, well, to put it mildly, we understand that you guys control the pipe, but what if we get to decide what gets to run through it? (laughs) So they were trying to... Split a few hairs there and talk about the contents of the pipe, uh, whereas the Supreme Court just said, no, go away. How does this all play in British Columbia? It's divided. Uh, the majority of people... Is it equally, divi- is it, is it equally divided, no. you think? 
It's not equally divided, no. The majority of people, based on polls, uh, support the twinning of the Trans Mountain Pipeline that runs for your folks who've been to B.C., runs from Edmonton down through the interior of B.C. It actually runs straight through Kamloops. To give you an idea, it, yeah. it provides all of the gasoline for the stations in Kamloops, to give you an idea, and then out to a refinery in Burnaby. Uh, and whereas in Vancouver proper, uh, there's more opposition to it, but the moment you leave, say, Vancouver proper and get out to the Fraser Valley, the interior up north, there's a very, very strong support for the twinning of the pipeline. How concerned are you that this is just death by delay? Because it just seems one step forward, two steps back. Great question. Uh, initially, about a year or so ago, we were a bit more concerned or discouraged, depending on what term you want to use, to, uh, but with the uh, earlier reports coming back from different levels of courts. But now that the federal government has really seemed to take it quite seriously, the level of consultation needed, uh, it sounds, based on their language, like this is going to go through and it's going to happen. Um, speaking anecdotally, we've seen uh, the pipe stacked up in different pipe yards along the route. Well, we're hearing information that it is actually moving forward. Is it moving forward? Where is, what is the actual status of this pipeline now? In Alberta, you can see video footage and photos of it going in the ground. Here in BC, it depends on where you are. So for example, I'm here in the Fraser Valley. I'm about an hour outside of downtown Vancouver. You can see a lot of groundwork being done but it looks like prep work. So you don't yet see the actual excavator hauling out to the soil and putting the the pipe in the ground. But that could just be a staging issue. They probably are starting in Alberta and working their way west. So in regard to death by delay, where are we in this process? The government has already approved this twice. So what other obstacles will there be moving forward? That's a good question. Uh, As of right now, it looks like the provincial government is out of options. And by provincial government, uh, we have an NDP government here, which is supported by by some Green Party members. So it's a form of minority government here provincially in British Columbia. So it's got that interesting mix. For folks who, who often will vote more on, say, the blue-collar labor side of NDP, it's very heavily influenced here in B.C. by the Green Party. So, while, for example, you know, steel workers, pipe fitters, crane operators, truckers, a lot of those unions fully support, for obvious reasons, the twinning of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is traditionally part of the big NDP voter base. But... Since they are partially in power because of Green Party support, there's this new influencing going on, and it's really kind of changing that party uh, from a political perspective. So that could eventually lead to some form of opposition. Who knows what they'll be able to come up with. But as far as absolute jurisdictional arguments in court, it sounds like they're done. They brought it all the way to the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court of Canada, and they rejected them unanimously and nearly immediately. Uh, now it looks like the, the province is out of options. How is the province reacting to this? How, how is the premier reacting to this? Is he just, oh, well, we've done what we've done, or what happens now? He says that he's disappointed, uh, and he, he's a very smart man, and he's a tactician. I'm sure he's trying to think of some other way of putting up some form of delay. Importantly, uh, the Attorney General of British Columbia is also going on the, the talk radio circuit saying he's disappointed. But at the end of the day, federal jurisdiction is ultimately federal jurisdiction. And we think this will eventually land back in the Prime Minister's lap. 
what will happen once you get all the way out to, say, Abbotsford or Surrey, and then you're crossing the Fraser River and you're landing in a place like Burnaby. Is that where uh, protests on the ground are going to get more vociferous? And then I think it's up to the federal government. What happens then? Are they going to enforce the law? Are they going to say this is federal jurisdiction and grant paramountcy to the builders? That all will wind up again on the desk of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Chris Sims is with us, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, you said earlier um, uh, in, in regard to how much this is costing uh, uh, per day, and, and you, you drew the comparison to how many teachers that would employ in mm-hmm. Ontario for 10 years and such. Um, it, it sounds, it, it makes sense. It sounds like common sense. Why is the Prime Minister's office having such a difficult time selling this? Why, why, why can't anybody sell this? Why is it not done? Another great question, uh, and it, I think it, it's connected back to what I was describing of the political change within some political parties, and so the NDP's political changing, that's where we're seeing more of a focus on the environment, and understandably so. We need to be reminded sometimes that, that Canada has some of the best, toughest environmental regulations in the world, and that is a good thing. If you, if you tour places like the oil sands and the energy patch in Alberta, you can see what kind of things they're doing. You compare that to even, uh, even just 100 years ago with how we used to uh, extract natural resources, it's, it's night and day. And so there is understandably a concern, often coming from more urban voters, on issues like the environment. But what seems to go hand in hand with that is um, perhaps a lack of understanding, and it's not willful, it's just a lack of understanding with how natural resources are harvested, how they're brought out of the ground, how they're processed. And that is the struggle, we think, that is happening right now with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, where his voter base is wide. He'll have all sorts of folks um, that work in natural resources, that work in heavy industry, that know how this stuff works, and they'll have some folks that perhaps aren't as aware of it. They're also quite often not aware of how much their everyday needs are covered by natural resources to just to give you that example so is the is the energy is the energy industry doing enough to sell this i mean uh, it seems like each province is working in its own silo trying to beat the other knowing that it's a drop in the bucket in a world issue i mean vancouver is also home to the largest coal port in north america i mean at what point do we start doing what's right as opposed to what just makes us feel good here we can be using clean canadian energy to get the rest of the world off the coal they're selling. That is a great point. Uh, in fact, I'm here in the Fraser Valley and you can see just train load after train load of coal going out that way. And while that export is important, uh, you're right. We have other options. We can get the rest of the world, for example, using natural gas, which often comes from the north of British Columbia and other parts in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan. And it's a much cleaner form of fuel, but it's still a form of oil and gas. And the world is developing and industrializing at a very fast rate. And there's a way of getting those Canadian products out to market that will be cleaner and better. So you're right. There, there does need to be more of a national conversation when it comes to natural resources. And there needs to be some more education about how they're extracted, what kind of laws and rules we have, and what kind of consultation is needed. To give you an example, uh, every single uh, First Nations uh, region that is part of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and that's a key part, geographically between Edmonton and Burnaby, have agreed with this. 
They've signed on with this. Yeah. However, when you start getting into more um, traditional forms of consultation, that's where things can get hung up in court, and that's where folks can feel that they're not being heard. And that was something that the Prime Minister, Prime Minister seemed to take very seriously, and it sounds as if that consultation is still ongoing. So there's so many moving parts to this. It's understandable why things get hung up. But once folks have been fully consulted, once folks have given their approval, once the highest court in the land have said, yes, do it, and the federal government has approved it several times, you eventually have to start just getting things done. And so that's what we're hopefully seeing here. Are we close to that? Are we close to that? I mean, you know, here we are 2020. Will we see will we see shovels in the ground? Will this thing because it could have been built by now. Yes, it could have. It could have. And this is, you you raise a good point because it's even more critically important now because unfortunately taxpayers own the thing. Uh, Up until just a little while ago. Yep. Up until a little while ago, we had uh, a private company that had owned it for decades, basically begging money into our hands, uh, begging to hire people at salaries of more than $100,000 a year. Please help me help you get your energy out to market. The federal government dithered and ragged the puck so long that the, the business just threw its hands in the air and said, oh, here, you take it. And now, unfortunately, taxpayers own the thing. Uh, we don't want the federal government trying to own and run this thing. They can't even pay their employees properly using a software system. Hmm. We don't want them trying to run a pipeline. So that adds extra pressure to this. We want the thing done, and we want it sold back out of government hands as soon as possible. Uh, do you think 2020 will be the year that this gets started, this physically gets rolling? Yeah, we, we hope so. We're always trying to put a positive yeah. uh, look on things, and but we see shovels in the ground, but it's politically different there, right? Shovels in the ground in Alberta, where yeah. Premier Jason Kenney is in charge and was elected with a huge majority, versus here in B.C., it's a much more delicate political situation. And again, depending on the region, you've got the, the geography from the Rocky Mountains all the way out to, say, Abbotsford. The moment you get down to the lower mainland is where things get tricky. Chris Sims has been with us, BC Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Stay warm, everybody. We're trying. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. We were talking uh, just uh, in the last segment with Chris Sims, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And telling us how much money, I think it's $13 billion, uh, I think it's a second, $13 billion a second. Is it a day? Dan McTagg will know. Uh, and that's the equivalent of 25,000 teachers being employed for 150,000 years, something like that. Anyway, the money that we're losing because uh, we're too busy shipping coal as opposed to uh, cleaner forms of energy uh, from British Columbia and across the country. And uh, it seems as if now there's some movement that's been made with the B.C. Supreme Court now rejecting the British Columbia uh, British Columbia government's uh, delay tactics, which keep going and going and going. This was pretty much a slam dunk. They just went in, they uh, chatted for 30 minutes, they came back out, and boom, that was the decision, 9 nothing. They didn't, uh, didn't deliberate it any, uh, for any length of time. Usually they wait for a day or so or what have you because it is the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, Chris Sims from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation said that it was because this was such a slam dunk and probably shouldn't have been there anyway. Here's what the Supreme Court of Canada Chief Justice uh, Richard Wagner had to say about the whole thing. We are all of the view to dismiss the appeal 
for the unanimous reasons of the Court of Appeal for British Columbia. And that was it. Smell you later, kids. We're off for lunch. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy with us now. Dan, how are you? Good to see you. Good to talk to you. Happy New Year, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, the same to you, Scott, and triply so. And, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly a, a very positive development. Uh, and uh, as you quite rightly alluded to, uh, a complete and utter slam dunk. Will that stop the activists? No. Uh, will that stop uh, more money flowing into Canada? to block uh, our clean energy? Absolutely not. Uh, will the federal government uh, say that's finally it? We're no more, no more pipelines. I'm, you know, bet on that. Uh, the federal government doesn't want to build anymore, doesn't want to have to fight this anymore. Made that pretty clear in passing the old C-68 and uh, rather C-69 and Bill C-48, the two pieces of legislation, controversial as they were, that went through the House uh, unamended uh, when the Liberals once had a majority. So does Trans Mountain get built? Uh, it should. But I'm still doubtful that it will make it uh, anytime soon. Uh, you're going to be looking at a lot of protests and uh, a lot of uh, civil disobedience uh, with people throwing themselves in front of tractors. Why don't they throw themselves in front of the barges that's taking the coal out every day? I mean, it's yeah. the biggest coal <laughs> port in North America, bigger than Donald Trump's. So right. wh- why aren't they throwing themselves in front of the ships? Uh, because that's what they're paid uh, to, uh, to ignore. Uh, this is all about virtue signaling. It's all about, uh, you know, uh, really their own narrative, which is to kill Canadian oil and gas. And they've been very successful up to date. Uh, we're one of the few countries that produces oil as ethically and gas as efficiently and as cleanly. And uh, there are more and more ways uh, coming about to make it even less emission intensive. Uh, but that's not good enough for the uh, for uh, you know environmentalists, uh, particularly foreign-funded NGOs that are working their around the clock to find ways to get Canadians to think that uh, what we produce in this country uh, is is dirty. And by the way, oil is not clean. It's dirty. It doesn't matter where it comes from. If you're suggesting some country in the United States is cleaner, you're full of hops. And so, uh, you know, this is really all about uh, uh, our ability to rescue the world by providing cleaner oil and, more importantly, cleaner natural gas in the form of LNG, to China and India, so they don't build out another 500 coal plants and uh, not only re, you know raise pollution, uh, which is something we also export, as you quite rightly pointed out, with coal, but also bring down emissions by 1,500 megatons a year. That's more than double our total output of uh, carbon emissions. So you know Canadians have really got to get on board with uh, backing our uh, our natural resources because we are the solution. And uh, those who are saying it's all about climate change in Canada isn't doing enough. We need to turn them off turned off the dial, ignore them, and really line them up in a 30-yard line and punt them right through the end zone. What does the message send, uh, what, what sort of message does the B.C. Supreme Court send when it comes back so quickly with a decision and it's unanimous, unanimous? I mean, normally, just out of the pure service of taking something to the Supreme Court, obviously they feel or someone feels it's an important issue. They do deliberate for at least, even if it is a slam dunk, a period of time. What sort of message does it it send that this was handled so quickly by the Supreme Court? I mean, the minister, the energy minister, called it a slapdown. Well, and it was. It's a slam dunk. And of course, more importantly, uh, it is uh, really a direction to provinces and to uh, trendies to stay in their own lane. We have a constitution for a reason. We have a national interest for a reason. Finally, and finally, the courts have 
recognize that. And I, I was very upset last year when the federal court decided to do a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, free freelancing when it came to division of power and consultation nonsense that caused this another two year delay uh, to this pipeline. Same thing we saw with the Northern Gateway, which caused another two year delay. But I think, uh, you know, justices recognize what the powers are in this country and who who does what. B.C. had absolutely no business coming in and saying they could somehow regulate that which was federal. And, of course, they were simply bowing to, you know, uh, activists and uh, uh, fanatics that, uh, you know, live in certain parts of that province. Because I, I encounter them all the time at Gas Price Wizard. I did so yesterday as well. Even many journalists who can't be objective because they all think that the world is coming to an end in 12 years and have really been caught up in this sort of hysteria for hysterical form of, you know, the world is coming to an end unless we punish Canadian and Canadian oil and natural gas only. So I think the court really saw through this, and it's a really a shot across the bow. Uh, now that uh, we have potentially the prospect of building Trans Mountain Pipeline, which was proposed, and I want to remind people, almost seven years ago, uh, the United States takes about two, not just to approve it, to also build it. Uh, we also have good news on the U.S. side. Thanks to Trans-Canada uh, Pipelines, uh, of course, they changed their name, dropped Canada, because apparently that's uh, just a bad target. Uh, the trans, uh, so the uh, uh, TC Energy, as they're referring to themselves now, uh, got uh, approval to st- finally start building the uh, Keystone XL Pipeline, the one that the left and uh, Obama tried to kill back a few years ago, the one which uh, Trump uh, pushed back on. And now, of course, the courts there have de- have decided it's okay, and uh, that could be a real boon for the Canadian economy going forward, especially given the United States' needs with the situation uh, that has presented itself with Iran in the Middle East, even more reliability and assurance that we have in North America, substantial energy security. What I find astounding in all of this, Dan, and we've talked about this many times, is you, you know, as we go across the country from east to west, west to each, east, you know, each each province has a different way of tackling this. But also with the issue itself, it's like each province is working in its own little silo, pretending that the one next door doesn't even exist. And instead of coming together and using the resources that we have to solve a worldwide problem. It's like, you know, BC is too busy trying to feel good about what their cause is or, or, or uh, Quebec or, or what have you uh, to, to think about what Saskatchewan's going through or what Alberta's going through or what uh, the East Coast is going through. Well, there's massive divisions even within provinces, BC being the best example. Outside of Vancouver and uh, Vancouver Island, where all the trendies live, uh, they are very much in favor. They have substantial amounts of oil, more importantly, natural gas, the Montney Project uh, uh, reserves that we have there. So, you know, the most of B.C., the working part of B.C., the fundamental, uh, you know, uh, energy uh, engine of growth in B.C., uh, short of, uh, you know, real estate speculation in Vancouver, the real market wants this, and they've been pushing for it. And I speak to a lot of folks uh, in the Okanagan, in uh, Kelowna, Kamloops, uh, Prince George, uh, all those areas are very, very strong in terms of getting our resources to market, getting pipelines built. So, you know, governments like the one you have in B.C., always kind of weird politics there to begin with, you know, uh, with a, an NDP government holding by a thread uh, with three green uh, members, I think many respects did things that they might otherwise not want to do. I recall the Premier Horgan himself just 10 years ago uh, decrying the, the provincial Liberal Party under Christy Clark at the time 
uh, bringing in a carbon tax. Uh, Horgan himself said it was terrible. It was going to hurt people when it came to home heating fuel and uh, people trying to get ahead. So, look, uh, circumstances and the narrative tends to change. But I think, uh, Scott, overall, there's a real pushback here in Canada, especially on a cold day like today. We need our natural gas. We need our fossil fuels. We need our economy to operate in a way in which we have all the ores in the water uh, rowing in the same direction. And it's important uh, that Canada be able to deliver on what the world wants, clean Canadian energy. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we just had the BC director on prior to you, and you know I've heard this before about how much we're losing per day, what that's the equivalent to, and, and you know the teacher strike that's going on in Ontario here, they're trying to draw the parallel with that, and how they could hire 25,000 more teachers with the kind of money that we're losing on an annual basis and such. Why, why can't the Prime Minister sell this? Why are, you know, I mean, you listen to what she said, it makes perfect common sense, and you know that the majority of the Canadians want this thing built. Why can't this be sold? Why is this a war a war of propaganda? Why is it a war of advertising? Well, I mean, look, you have a phalanx of folks that work for mainstream media who don't want this to be out there. And when you challenge them, as I did yesterday to one particular journalist uh, in British Columbia, their argument collapses. They are really brainwashed and indoctrinated in the idea that uh, it's all about carbon, it's not about uh, the viability of the economy. And what they don't recognize is that the only victims of blocking pipelines are our Indigenous people, are the folks that rely on social programs in this country, are the hard workers in this country who uh, provide the revenue, provide the tax base by which the Canadian and provincial governments can operate. Here in Ontario, how about 40,000 direct jobs are connected to the, uh, the viability of our energy sector? How about the fact that there are billions of dollars, including the Toronto Stock Exchange, for goodness sakes, which is really commodity-driven. So anybody who wants to get trendy and cute can do so, but they're whistling past their own uh, economic and fiscal and social grave. The reason this is so important as well is Canadian unity. Anybody who has any doubt of that? When you throw 300 or 200,000 people out of work as you did in Alberta to bend over and yield to the, uh, to the dictates of the trendies uh, on carbon uh, uh, you know, uh, alarmism, then I think you have to recognize that uh, you may not have much of a federation left when all is said and done. So today, yesterday's decision by the court, I think, uh, helped bring things back. I think people now have a little bit more faith in our, our judicial system, but I think we still have a long way to go. Damage has been done. It's going to take a long time to undo it, especially when you have the Mark Carneys of this world going out and saying, I want to make sure that all big investment companies start uh, uh, pooling money towards carbon credits. In other words, create their own bloody way of making money while dumping on fossil fuels, which the world needs, whether we like it or not, whether that's for the drugs we use, whether it's for the chemicals that we use, whether it's the road that we pave, or whether it's the transportation fuels that we need to drive our economy or keep ourselves warm. The reality is that these people are uh, really ed- edging towards what I call quackery economics as opposed to fundamentals. Again, I, you know, and as I said earlier, it's, you know, we're supplying clean energy, uh, trying to get clean energy out the door, and it's hiding behind big boats, big boats of coal that are, that are going <laughs> through the harbor. And here's yeah. the information from the, from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and this is from the Parliamentary Budget Office. By yeah. not having this thing running between 2013 and 2023, uh, missing out on nearly $13 billion in federal tax revenue during that decade, that's the equivalent 
equivalent of building six brand new St. Paul's hospitals in Vancouver or that of the salaries of more than 26,000 new teachers in British Columbia for 10 years. Why can't someone sell that message? Like, should the Canadian Taxpayers Federation be running the uh, the the uh, promotions department for the energy industry and for the government here? <laughs> like, I mean, this is common sense stuff. Yeah, well, Chris Sims is bang on, and that's why she is as credible as she is, both in British Columbia, but transpose that to the federal level. If you're wondering why the federal government's having to make decisions about increasing annual debts by $20, $28 billion a year, has accumulated $106 billion a year, you only have to look at what happens when you block our number one industry. And let's, let's really make this very clear to everybody. I don't care where you live in this nation. We price all of our goods on US in U.S. terms. If we keep blocking pipelines, which block our number one export, which is oil and gas, and cause it to be, uh, in, on a day like today, a third less than what world energy prices get, we wind up devaluing the Canadian dollar. That means that uh, our grocery prices go up, our energy prices go up. In the case of gasoline, you're paying an extra 17 cents a litre because our dollar is reflecting the fact that we simply cannot get our most fundamental, important uh, products to market. And we're denying the federal government and provincial governments the revenues they need to pay for our hospitals, to pay for our schools, and to pay for our social programs. So anybody who wants to get trendy and follow these people better understand that what they're doing is is really effectively, literally, cutting their nose off to spite their face. What will the Prime Minister's office do with this information? Uh, We understand that the pipeline is moving forward in, obviously, the province of Alberta. There's actually digging and and such going on there, but in key parts of B.C., obviously not the case. What will the Prime Minister do with this information? What does this change moving forward? Well, it changes everything, but I think the Prime Minister has to be clear that the Noman is going to take his commitment to building this pipeline more seriously than when we get uh, permit permits uh, that allow us to get onto those sites. And as I mentioned to you, Scott, in our last interview, uh, we're going to need to see uh, literally uh, construction permits issued that allow the building of the pipeline in British Columbia. Until and save and until that happens, uh, this pipeline is still uh, no further than it was in 2013 when it was uh, proposed. I don't think this should be a pipe dream. I think this needs to be a pipe reality for Canadians. And if they want to keep their jobs, maintain their standard of living, uh, I would suggest that the first thing they should be doing is encouraging this prime minister to get those spades in the ground post-haste. All right, Dan McTagg's been with us, former Liberal MP and with Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Have a great weekend to you and your listeners. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. A fascinating op-ed in the Globe and Mail. A former staffer of, of Jean Chrétien says that uh, if you want to save the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Spaver, that have been detained in China, of course, after uh, the detainment of the Huawei CFO on an extradition warrant to head to the United States to face charges there, of um, uh, bribery, fraud, what have you, involved with Iran several years earlier. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta, and is with us now. Gordon, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. And something totally unrelated. Are Albertans happy today about the B.C. court decision from the Supreme Court okaying the pipeline, or do you not even want to go there? Uh, Albertans are certainly happy. Um, Economy's hurting badly. Edmonton, for a major city, has the highest unemployment rate in the country, so the idea that oil will flow, presumably, um, sooner rather than later, although I'm sure it'll be a couple of years, uh, yes, people are happy. 
All right, let's move on. Uh, your thoughts on the article in the Globe and Mail, uh, penned by Eddie Goldenberg, want to bring the Michaels home, send Meng Wanzhou home back to China, or send her back to Canada, or China, rather. Your thoughts on this, is, is it this easy? Is this a viable option for Canada? It is certainly an option. There have been two schools of thought uh, in this country about how to manage this. And then, of course, there's the Chinese views. One school of thought says uh, we stick with the Department of Justice advice. We wait out the extradition process, which, as Eddie Goldberg points out, could be weeks, months, years. Um, meantime, our two hostages sit in difficult conditions in a jail. Um, that's that's the first position. And then there's this one, which is, as Eddie puts forward, which I've heard elsewhere, uh, that we invoke Article 23.3 of the Extradition Act, which allows the Minister of Justice at any time to simply bring an end to the proceedings. She goes home and then presumably our, uh, our detainees are freed, our hostages are freed. What would be that process if all of a sudden the Prime Minister's office decided, you know what, this uh, is not worth it. We are going to instead uh, trade uh, the CF, the Huawei CFO for the two Michaels. What would be the process? I mean, legalities, what have you. How would this even start to move forward? Well, it's quite different from SNC-Lavalin where the Attorney General, albeit the same person, who was responsible for prosecution, that was controversial because it was an issue whether or not to prosecute. In this instance, the political minister, the Minister of Justice, clearly under the Act, has the authority to do so. In this case, it's a he on a time of his choosing. Mm-hmm. But to be sure, you're right, the Prime Minister and Cabinet presumably would be involved. Uh, if that decision were taken to evoke 23.3, that process could end at any time. I mean, it could be over in a matter of days. However, in my opinion, the Chinese have never publicly admitted that our hostages were taken in reaction or retaliation for Hmong's detention. Of course they were, but they've not admitted that. Before you'd want to do that, if it were me running that show and that was a decision, I would say you'd want to have some high-level, quiet consultations in Beijing with the Chinese to make sure that R2 would be released fairly soon, quickly. Um, if not simultaneously. How could you? How would that even work when you think about it? I mean, you call somebody up and say, you have the two Michaels ready, we'll have the Huawei CFO ready, and then, you know, a, 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 an actual trade? I mean, would anybody do this without receiving the other one uh, first? Well, it's not, there's not quite like a Checkpoint Charlie in the Cold War. It I almost sounds like that. Time. That was a bit special. Um, my guess is, the Chinese, to save face, believe it or not, would not want to release them instantaneously. I think you'd, there would be a short pause, uh, but they might be moved to decent accommodations like a guest house. And then perhaps a week or two later, they'd have a chance to visit family and doctors and, and then be flown out. I mean, I don't know this for certain, but Chinese are very good at behind the scenes, quiet. You don't hear a peep about a diplomacy. Uh, we're not quite as good at it because we live in an open society, but... I'd want that to be done at a high level directly with the Communist Party of China. I'd also look for something else. This is the second time the Chinese have done this. They did it a few years ago with the Garretts when we extradited a spy to the... We went ahead with an extradition and and, uh, extradition a spy. They they took the Garrett couple. Uh, I'd want to say to the Chinese and get some at least oral reassurances, look, you've done this twice. Um, This is damaging our relations. Hurts us, hurts you. Um, stop using that. Now, of course, you're not going to get an international convention to force them to stop doing, to behaving badly. They will behave badly. 
but I would want some in-depth behind-the-scenes discussion is stop using this tool. Twice is already twice too many. How would that, say this did happen and there was a prisoner exchange per se, um, how would that, how would, how would America react to this? How would, uh, how would the rest of the world react? Well, two separate things. I think the United States would be annoyed and certainly say they're annoyed and we'd hear from them. They're, my only comment to that is they're annoyed with us about a lot of things on any given day. Um, our prime minister from comments from Trump, et cetera, or um, some things that they, they, they don't approve of, trade or whatever, that we, they would be very annoyed. Um, however, uh, we're the ones paying the price, not them uh, right now. They've just made a trade pact with China. Um, Trump and Xi Jinping are going to get that, together. That's, that was ex- ex- exactly my next point here, Gordon, is that, you know, a day ago we're watching the two on TV shake their hands about phase one of a trade agreement. Meanwhile, none of this seems to be uh, at the table at all. None of this even seems to, seems to be on the agenda. Well, Pompeo raised it in public once. I'm not confident that, that this is the top of Trump's agenda. There's a concern in my part of me that they, we don't want the Americans to fight China to the last Canadian. Um, and we're hurting. We're hurting in trade terms, uh, political terms, and while Trump makes deals with Xi Jinping. It's partly, this is partly real politic. Um, and of course, we don't want to break Canadian laws, but 23.3 is there for a reason. The Minister of Justice can, in the national interest, make such a, a decision and carry it out. Uh, there would be hell to pay in Washington for sure. Some of our allies might be disappointed because we've got them to go to bat. On the other hand, several of them are dealing with similar situations with their own consular employees. And I find while they are making statements in favor of our detainees, they're still sending their foreign ministers, their prime ministers and presidents, and uh, there's still a regular exchange between them and the Chinese. We're very isolated on this one. We're more or less on our own. Uh, if this was to happen, some sort of prisoner exchange, um, how would this affect trade? How would it would affect our relationship with China? How would it affect the whole 5G discussion? Well, oh boy, those are, those are tough questions. I think on the trade side, again, the Chinese never like to admit they've done anything wrong. So you're not going to see canola start up the next day, although I'd want those discussions to include um, lay off our farmers and um, in the same way that Trump makes deals, I mean, we sometimes will need to make deals in this new world with these great powers, uh, and their deals affect us. Um, I don't think things will go back to normal the next day, but and I don't think Canadians will think as kindly of, the, of China as they did before. That's fine. It's good to be eyes wide open. But I think that part would recover. 5G Huawei, to me, is a case that we ought to be making this on the balance of what's best technically. If China's a real threat and our genuine technical experts say it is, fine, shut them out. If we're just doing this at the behest of, of the United States and we're going to have to buy the far more expensive Ericsson or, or Nokia equipment, hmm, maybe we can find a way to finesse this. The Brits and the Germans are caught in the same bind right now, stuck between Beijing and Washington. And I'd say again there, there's going to have to be a calc- have to be a calculation in cabinet. How much is this going to cost us in Washington? What is best for Canada? I always like deals that are the best for us, not to please the Chinese or to please the Americans, but really at the bottom line, all those factors figured in. 
what's best for us. Uh, would the fallout with the United States be as big as everyone's anticipating it would be if we were to disregard this extradition treaty? I think the Hmong case would not be as big with the with Washington as would be the 5G. That's the bigger one, in my view, for them. 5G, the Huawei thing affects so many countries, and they want to hold the line. And now they've got the Germans, the Brits, and the Canadians sitting on the fence trying to find if there's some way we can finesse this. The, the Hmong case, and that's Canada only, and it doesn't necessarily play for others. So I think of the two, the Huawei decision is one that matters much more to Washington than, than Hmong. Um, if we release the Huawei CFO, what is the guarantee that they will do the same with the two Michaels? Well, that's to me where I wouldn't want the Minister of Justice to do this tomorrow. I would want there to be quiet, high-level discussions with clear reassurances. I mean, I trust the Chinese up to a point, but given that they've been demanding this, we've been demanding our hostage release, they did that only because of Hmong, I think that deal could be struck. But, I, but again, don't just do it and say, now please. I'd say, let's sit down quietly with the Communist Party of China, uh, the ones who have really orchestrated this whole thing, and make sure we have a clear understanding. You're not going to get a legal treaty, but I'd want to have the word of very, very senior officials that this will happen. If Should- not the same day, very quickly after, and I'm talking a week or two max. Should uh, the U.S. be involved in this conversation? Should somebody from Canada say to the United States, you know what, this is going to take forever, this extradition process. We have two Canadians here that are suffering. Well, the Huawei CFO enjoys the mansions. Uh, We're going to start working out a deal unless you do something to push this through. Is there not leverage there somewhere? We're going to let her go unless you do something. You're the one meeting and doing the trade deals. Get our two Canadians back or we're letting her go. The only thing they could do that would solve the Hmong case would be to drop the extradition request. And since it's serving their interest right now um, to keep the pressure up on the Chinese uh, with us paying the price, I don't think they do that. But certainly we'd have to let them know and explain it. They would be furious. Uh, but do they not know? I mean, do they not know that, that the government is grappling with this decision already? I mean, they must. They must. And quite frankly, I mean, the U.S. government has made exchanges of people um, previously um, and made similar deals. It's a real politic world. We want to be within the rule of law, but our law does permit the Minister of Justice to take this decision. Uh, But yes, I mean, I don't think they would be utterly surprised. And quite frankly, they might very well have done the same thing themselves uh, faced with this. I'm not sure of that, Um, but uh, we need to make the calculation for Canada. And we're not going to it's a tough world now, and I don't think we have as close a relationship with the United States. I don't think President Trump honors allies in the way that his predecessors did. Uh, I think it's going to be a cold winter out there in international affairs for us for some time with these great powers uh, making side deals, and uh, we're with us sometimes stuck in the middle. Uh, can we pretend, can the world keep pretending that it's just business as usual while this is all going on? I mean, is this, not, is this reputation not damaged for a very long time? Are Canadians safe there now, whether on business or pleasure? Well, I, I've told the Chinese and, and at a senior level that this isn't working out for them, and I don't actually think they think it's worked out well for them. Uh, I think that they thought it would be 
This would be something quite short. And what it's done is, I think it's for a long time damaged the views of Canadians. You can see it in the opinion polls. It will take years for the views of many Canadians, their views of China to recover. For a society that bases so much on culture and trust, do they understand Mm -hmm. the damage they have done here? We told them that. I led a delegation that went in November that had um, former Minister Alan, Justice Minister Alan Rock, uh, uh, John Baird, and former deputies and ambassadors. And What's that experience them. like? It was very unusual. We were in the um, remote part of Sichuan province at a, at a um, um, mountain resort, uh, very private, and uh, um, it was all very polite. The good news was after about 20 minutes, they run out of their talking points, and then you get down to more frank discussion. Um, they know where we stand. They didn't yield any ground. But they know how unhappy Canadians are and how, um, how unhappy, um, how it's shifted views of, of China within this, within this country. We, we made no bones about that. And, and how does that them. resonate with them, that, you know, mm-hmm. that this relationship that was once reasonably cordial has turned the way it has? I mean, Canadians' opinions of China have greatly changed. Well, that's true. And uh, I think... Resonate, I mean, it's hard to tell. They're pretty good at keeping, holding their cards out of view. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I'm sure it did. We had lots of time. We took hours to go over this ground. And I think it did register. And I suspect they're getting some of the reporting from their own missions here. They can read the same um, letters to the editor and editorials and, uh, and uh, polls. So I think they do know it's damaged. I don't think it has worked for them. Um, but they're in a bind now. They're, they're locked down on Meng. She's... A bit like an Ivanka Trump or the daughter of, of Steve Jobs or something like that. She's mm-hmm. basically royalty within China. They're not going to yield. And unfortunately, our guys are suffering in infinitely worse conditions than she's enjoying in Vancouver. So I guess the argument is, can we not find a way to cut this knot? And to, um, uh, But again, I'd want, to con- I'd want to combine it with some sort of assurances um, from a senior level to lay off this technique because it is, um, uh, we don't want to go there a third time. Is The longer this drags out, and everybody says this extradition hearing is going to take forever, the longest this drags out, is there more of a chance that the Canadian government will use its option of just shutting this all down? I would think so. Um, I think there's been a lot of hope placed in getting other countries to weigh in on our effect. The Americans have spoken out. Other countries have raised it, um, but I don't see any movement. I mean, China, uh, you know, this is the days when you could sail gunboats up the Yangtze and force the Chinese to comply. Those are long, long gone. China is a great power, and uh, they don't appreciate, quite frankly, what they see as ganging up on them. They're not going to yield. Uh, I think we're locked in as long as Meng's in our, in, uh, is in, uh, uh, under the Canadian extradition, the pall of that, uh, of that act. Uh, should the Prime Minister uh, make the decision on Huawei and the 5G and just say, nope, ain't going to happen? Well, does that, does, does that hold, does be, that hold any... Be important. Is there any leverage there with the two Michaels or not? Well, you see, that's in... I like to deal... My experience working as a diplomat, I like to deal with oranges and oranges and apples and apples. Yeah. And linkages, it, it's bad enough that we've got citizens of both countries locked up. Uh, or at least restrained in the case of with an ankle bracelet in her case. Um, you start adding other elements, it gets a bit tricky. And then I'd start worrying that China would start taking hostages to get economic decisions out of Canada. We yeah. really don't want that. So I wouldn't want to go down that route. 
Um, I would do. I would say let's make those decisions separately on their own merits. Gordon Holden has been with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science at the University of Alberta. In an op-ed in the Globe and Mail, a former staffer of Jean Chrétien says, if you want to save the two Michaels, we have to trade them for the Huawei CFO. Gordon, fascinating as always. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for this opportunity, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.